0: this is stinky lulu says and a regular podcast about contemporary theater i'm brian herrera and i'm stinky lulu and i'm also a theater professor and i see a lot of shows and stinky lulu says is where i get my say about what i see But in this cycle of episodes, dropped in the spring of 2020, I don't so much talk about the shows I've seen as offer some reflections on what it's like to teach a college course on 21st century Latinx drama when all the theaters and all the colleges have been shut down. And in this week's episode, I take up some questions that have been swirling in many hearts and many minds this week. Does anyone have a plan for that? What will it take for the theaters and the colleges to reopen? After considering those questions, uh, I'll then offer some brief comments on this week's play, And Then They Forgot About the Rest, by Georgina Escobar. In each installment of this podcast since the shutdown, I have tried to identify a particular question. Uh, that, you know, in my idiosyncratic survey of public commentary about the COVID-19 crisis, a question that somehow opened or addressed the tensions and uncertainties I saw being shared between the two cultural industries our class is working between, higher education and the professional theater. Now this week, I'm not sure, I wasn't, for a long time, I wasn't sure why, I mean, but this week I really struggled to identify a focus, a, a focusing question. You, normally the Uh, The questions have been clear to me by Wednesday or Thursday, sometimes even as early as Tuesday. And so I have Wednesday or Thursday to think about them, spending Friday and Saturday really gathering my thoughts. Also, I can get them in some kind of order before it comes time to record the podcast on Sunday. But this week, nothing was coming into focus. I mean, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, even as late as 10 p.m. on Saturday night, I had nothing. But that was when I finally sat down to watch a video that several friends had sent to me this week. This video featured cast members from the 2018 production of In the Heights, a staged by Milwaukee Rep. And in the video, these cast members from the 2018 production together performed that musical's remarkable finale. Um, I'll play a segment of it for you now. Imagine me leaving today on a 747 board JFK. The hydrants are open. Cool breezes blow The video is one of those shutdown-style mosaic music videos. You know the kind that we've seen a lot in the last couple weeks, the kind where folks who are sheltering in place in whatever place they happen to be sheltering in, they record themselves separately singing a song so that through some magic of post-production I have yet to understand, their independent recordings are somehow merged videographically together to create something like a music video. A music video that is usually in some... Roughly equal measure, kind of beautiful, sort of inspiring, and sort of sweet or funny or profound. I mean, remember how last week I told you I was a student of genre formation. Now this is what I'm talking about. Over the last few weeks, we've really seen this genre of music video, which draws upon a style of video production that definitely existed prior to the shutdown. But even over the last, but it's really been over the last few weeks that we've seen this. Um, Recognizable mosaic music video becomes something of a genre with guiding conventions of form and affect and audience expectations, all of which somehow become standard and to which we are, um, many of us at least, are becoming somewhat sophisticated to. Um, But that question of genre formation is sort of beside the point of what I'm getting today, but that is one example. And so as I watched this mosaic music video of the cast of Milwaukee Rep's 2018 production of In the Heights, the acclaimed first musical by Lin-Manuel Miranda, co-written with Chiara Chiara Alegria-Hudes, who those of you in the class will remember, also co-wrote Miss You Like Hell, which we read for this class, I mean, it feels like a thousand years ago, but it was only in February. But watching the Milwaukee Rep video, I realized that In the Heights was to blame for my lack of finding a question. It... In the Heights was the reason I so struggled to come up with a question for this week's podcast, because it was on Tuesday that the news broke that the release of the film version of In the Heights was postponed. I mean, I've been building a list of closed, canceled, and postponed performances for the last month and a half, but this one hit me. In the Heights, the movie, would be postponed until the summer of 2021. I mean... We had already known that production on the film had had to stop as a result of the shutdown and that the film would not be released in theaters as it was originally scheduled to on June 26th. I mean, uh, when the shutdown happened, um, they, uh, as I understand it, they were deep in post-production doing the music mix, I believe. And so everything stopped and it wasn't clear that they'd be able to finish the work before and to make the film ready in time for its June 26th release. But this past Tuesday, it was confirmed That not only would they not get it ready for its June 26 release, they were going to be pushing it back an entire year. I mean, it's a total bummer, yes, but it also makes total sense, yes. The film, um, the piece, the show, uh, as it becomes a film, it's sort of really perfect as a summer feel-good thing. Um, I mean, as as a film with a lot of resources and a lot of uh, talent behind it, it's the kind of movie that really is poised to be a major summer box office hit. And with the original June 26 twenty twenty release date, I mean, that put it put their strategy put, made it pretty clear they were. We're looking to launch the film in the big movie weekends right leading up to 4th of July holiday, which is one of the biggest box office moments of the summer. And if you know the musical, having the musical playing in theaters on July 4th is thematically relevant to the show itself. So yeah, it makes all kind of sense for the movie to come out in the summer, for it to come out when there's a lot of opportunity for box office, and for it to come out right before 4th of July. And it's better that the movie is finished to perfection when it is released. So all of that, I get it. I'm behind it. I agree with it, all of that. But still, it was a bummer. I mean, I understood all that, but intellectually, I got it. But I was bummed out, not so much for sentimental reasons, like, sure, I'm sad, I won't get to see the movie so quickly, but for other totally selfish reasons. Because as many of you know, I am slated to teach a class next fall on Latinx musicals on stage and screen. And the new In the Heights movie was to have been where I would start the whole class. I mean, indeed, the fact that the movie had an announced scheduled release for this summer was actually the direct inspiration for me deciding to conceive and offer this class. And so the news that the film wasn't going to be available for my course next fall, it just sort of threw this whole other level of existential despair into the mix of just like, I didn't know what to do. I had already been struggling with the idea of whether and how I might adapt the format of this new course, this ambitious big new course from a live lecture format uh, toward, I wasn't sure how I could turn that into a hybrid remote instruction thing. What would the course look like if we're back if we're back to face-to-face instruction in September, that's one set of planning. What if we're totally online? That's a whole other set of planning. What if it ends up being some mix of the two like it was this semester? What if What if? With so many questions? So I'd already had a lot of questions about how I was gonna make this class work, and so then the, the news about the film comes and the crucial component of the course of design is no longer available, and that additional pivot just took whatever motivation I had to think creatively about this course, it took all that wind sort of out of my sails. Now, a side note for any of y'all who are Princeton students who are thinking about taking this class, don't worry, you know me, I'll figure it out. The class will be awesome. Different, but awesome. And if any of y'all are listening and are not Princeton students but still curious about this class, who knows? With the way things are going, there may just be another podcast or some other public-facing content available to you as well. Everything's changing. I don't know what it's going to look like in September. I don't just don't know what this course or any course I teach from here forth will actually look like yet. And that's where I realized my point. Seeing the Milwaukee Rep 2018 cast of In the Heights do their mosaic music video helped me understand that my own In the Heights mini-meltdown actually aligned with conversations I had been tracking all week, conversations that had been simmering in both higher education and entertainment industry press. Um, And it really is this, what I was just talking about, like this so many contingency plans, this proficiency of, well, maybe we'll do it this way, or maybe we'll do it this way, maybe we'll do it another way. As leaders in both higher education circles and the theater industry, at all levels and at all scales, all are thinking contingently toward fall. We are seeing everyone planning toward multiple possible scenarios. Everything's still entirely hypothetical because no one knows what the world will be like come August or September or whatever. So all anyone can do right now is plan toward multiple possible paths forward. And so in my social media circuits, as well as in all the Zoom rooms I've been in this week, this question of contingency plans, what is your plan A, plan B, plan C, on down to Q, what are your plans for the fall? These has been a recurring set of layered questions. Lots of business as usual, but always with a giant asterisk on anything resembling a solid plan. And so stepping back a bit from my own mini meltdown and stepping back to think about the articles I've been reading on this topic and conversations I've been listening in on all week, I noticed that there are four main areas of uncertainty that seem to coordinate the contingency plans for those engaged either in the theater or in higher ed or sometimes in both. And these four things are. One, the need for new hygiene and health protocols. I mean, both we're starting things up again and for building resilience and capacity should short-term quarantines or extended shutdowns be again required. Two, uh, adapted scale of participation and or numbers of participants. So this is the idea of like, the idea of shrinking cast sizes or shrinking the number of students allowed in a class or in an audience or limiting how many folks might be allowed to be on a campus or in a lecture hall or in an audience, a theater at a particular time. Or this idea that some people might be onsite and some people might be working from home in some sort of ways to sort of balance social distancing protocols. So um, new hygiene and health protocols, adapted sense of scale and participation or number of participants. And then number three, restructuring uh, established or familiar schedules and calendars. Um, So what this is about is really a lot of conversation about staggered arrivals or sort of maybe sort of smaller groups coming at certain times and leaving so that there's not a concentration of people, audiences coming in waves, starting later in the, maybe everything starting later in the fall or maybe starting in spring and working through next summer. And also in this is introducing the idea of different kinds of scheduling instead of having a a bunch of things going up at the same time, maybe having smaller block, modular or block scheduling of things. And so finally, so new hygiene health protocols, adapted scale of participation, restructuring of schedules, and then finally, a temporary, but perhaps comprehensive revision of presumptive obligations, sort of this idea of changing what contracts expect or how many hours hours are in the day, uh, a workday are for the industry, or but also in, in a school setting, like things like attendance and grades. So these four protocols, new hygiene and health, adapted, le, um, adapted scale of participation or numbers, restructuring familiar schedules, temporary but comprehensive revision of obligations. Um, these are the things I think I've been hearing a lot of uh, people thinking about in ways that were new and clear in that were just coming into focus this week. So to take one each one in turn, um, one, newly rigorous health protocols. Now, early this week, it was really sort of weird. A number of theater journalists shared an excerpt. This is totally like the equivalent of, of sort of like smarty pants um, gossip. Um, a number of theater journalists shared an excerpt from a German publication. So it was a German publication that had been translated by by probably machine into English. And this German publication had an article about how theater practice, theater-going practices in Korea had changed as performances began to resume after that country sort of got things under control uh, in terms of feeling like they could start reopening things again. So according to this paragraph... Um, And and remember here that South Korea is a country with much more robust robust protocols of contract tracing and uh, everything that might be, this kind of stuff might not not ever really be possible in the U.S. But but there in South Korea, audience members had to have their temperatures checked before they entered the theater. And they also had to walk through a mist-like disinfectant spray upon entry. So they had their temperatures checked and they walked through this mist of disinfectant. Um, and so like in the U S we have our bags checked before we enter the theater in Korea, you'd have your bags checked, walk through the disinfectant mats, they take your temperature. And if all of that worked, they'd let you in. And then of course, while you're in the theater, the entire time you're in the theater, you have to wear a mask for the entirety performance. Now this reportedly allowed for what happened, uh, this sort of set of protocols allowed for what happened when a few members of the performing troupe uh, somewhere along the way, the way, tested positive for the virus because of these elaborate protocols. All audience, me- all eight thousand audience members who had been in the theater with that troupe who was performing on stage. All 8,000 audience members were notified and all subsequent performances were temporarily suspended as all 120 members of the company cast and crew were quarantined. So this was a fairly rigorous measure of control, which which was sort of circulated among a lot of the folks I knew in the circuit of like, wow, could this happen? How would this happen? Uh, Would this be allowed? Could the U.S. figure this out? But these kind of robust mechanisms, monitoring who's in the audience, contract tracing of those people, uh, a capacity for self-quarantine, those all are what do appear to be on the minds of industry leaders in both higher ed and entertainment. Take, for example, an article that I saw published earlier this week in the Entertainment Industry Trade Magazine Deadline, which had an interview with the union for professional stage actors and stage managers, Actors' Equity Association, which we've heard about a few times in this course. Now, Actors' Equity had hired the high-profile safety consultant, David Michaels. Uh, Michaels is a former administrator of OSHA under President Barack Obama. Just by way of reminder, OSHA is the Occupational Occupational Safety and Health Administration, O-S-H-A, Occupational Safety and Health Administration. Now, this is the federal agency that is part of the United States Department of Labor that is responsible for workplace health and safety. So employee safety. Like if you get injured on the job, it's an, you know, you can sort of bring a claim through OSHA for regulations. Like this is the folks that are supposed to make sure that you're safe on the job. Now David Michaels was who was an administrator with OSHA in the previous presidential administration, was hired by Actors Equity to um, to advise and to help the union develop the steps necessary that they, as advocates for their members, would hold as necessary before theaters across the country would be able to reopen and employ professional actors after the shutdown. Deadline asked why Actors Equity had hired an outside consultant on this matter, and that's uh, and Equity Executive Director Mary McCall replied. And this is an extended quote. This is all Mary McCall. I'm sorry, I don't have audio for it. So this is Mary McCall. We're thinking specifically about the workplace that our members work in. So on stage and backstage. And those areas are small, compact, with lots of people working closely. You've got stagehands and wardrobe personnel and our stage management personnel. And then, of course, you have the actors. We're trying to tell the story of the play and who need to have emotional conversations on stage. Maybe they have to cry, so they're in tears involved. And sometimes that makes their noses run, so that's involved. And when they're singing, sometimes they sp- spit unintentionally. That happens. But how long does the virus live on a prop? And how many people need to touch that prop? How many times is that prop used in a 15-minute minute period? How does it need to be clean? And then, of course, there's the issue of human interaction, which is the beating heart of live theater, the human interaction that happens on stage and backstage. Actors need to change costumes quickly and so have contact with wardrobe personnel, etc. So what do we need to do How do we modify the things we do and what else should we do to keep things safer? So this idea of this, uh, the first item on the list of the themes that we're running through, this idea of more robust health and safety protocols is clearly on the minds of industry leaders. And I would say that this is also what we'll hear coming up in higher education conversation. Again, it's like, what can be done to make sure that the circumstances are safe before we ask people to come back and live and work in these environments. The next point is that I I highlighted was sort of the adapted scale and structure of participation, like how many people are going to be involved. And this is where a really interesting idea has started beginning to circulate again. and mostly in the realm of provisional plans, but it did so, we see it first, I think, in film and TV production, which is a little bit more of a controlled environment than either theater or college. But in film and TV production, we've begun to see the idea of what they're calling quarantine production pods. And this is one potential strategy for resuming production. Um, now in these provisional plans, which were reported on in Variety, which is a different trade in, or industry entertainment industry publication, they were reported on this week. And the idea of these quarantine production pods is that for small scale film or television productions, this would not be Avengers, but sort of a smaller film like um, Honey Boy or just something with a small cast, what we would call an indie film. So uh, a casting crew of maybe 100, 150 people. The entire cast would be in a two week quarantine before they would begin production. And they would have to be tested before production began. And as production then commenced, the cast and crew would be divided into three pods. Um, pod one would be the onset cast and crew. Pod two would be um, sort of the base camp, the support camp for the onset onset cast, like makeup, hair, catering, the folks that need to be able to bring stuff in and out. And then the third pod would be designs, set design, and prep, and all this other kind like having things ready in the back end. And so in this proposal, each pod would be made up of thirty or so people. And each pod would have a designated quarantine supervisor and the shooting schedule would have to allow for 72 hours of window of decontamination time for props, costume, and other equipment as it came on set. And so all of this stuff would have to be elaborately managed so that safety, social distancing uh, protocols could be observed while also having this sort of pod model of self-quarantine. And the production would be entirely self-contained with uh, uh as well. And this would require in some cases for a crew to do multiple jobs, which would oblige special permission from the unions. And this method of production is already actually in place in certain US and Australia TV production things, mostly for talk and news, news television production. Um but in Australia it's just been uh installed for um one of their popular daytime soaps of sort of a really elaborated scaled down number of people on set with even uh set um uh, crew performing as, as uh, extras or day players. So really restructuring how many people are on set and how things are being done. And this idea of quarantine pods could also describe some plans that I've heard happening in higher education circuits, um, which are exploring this idea of smaller groups of students coming to camp- campus for concentrated or designated periods of time. So perhaps sorted by class year, perhaps sorted by class, like Course enrollment, like who's taking, like everybody who's taking this class will come to campus for a certain period of time. Um, the reasoning goes here, of course, in this quarantine pod model. The reasoning goes that smaller groups would be easier to monitor in terms of tracking and tracing uh, potential exposure, but that will also allow for baseline protocols of social distancing while on while in practice. So this idea of reducing numbers, creating structures uh, so that there's reduced numbers of folks to not only allow for social distancing in real time. But also for management, should isolation need to happen? And so we see this going on in a variety of different models, Uh, elementary school classes, having no more than 12 students in a class, all these kinds of things, this sort of adjusting and what would be the financial and other consequences of having to find a way to manage that kind of recalibration of how many people are gathered in a given space and time. So health and safety protocols, revised sense of scale of how many people are involved. Then also then third one is restructured calendar. We see a lot of conversations going on. Uh, this is so, sort of the first theme I saw emerging, which is theater and production companies and producers, as well as uh, deans and uh, administrators and colleges. As they're strategizing how they might might move forward with operation, the if and the when of the new season of theatrical productions and of college classes, um, everybody's beginning to think toward multiple scenarios of timing. And I can say that this is also what I'm hearing happening at Princeton. Um, One article, which was published this week to some consternation among some, on the website uh, Inside Higher Ed, this one article, um, which it posted as a teaser for what it promised to be an e-publication forthcoming in the next few weeks, uh, posited fifteen possible scenarios of how the schedule might need to change, or how how this sort of what would be the mechanisms of timing of launching of how this mode of how things might resume. And uh, these fifteen scenarios would be everything back to start like as as scheduled to uh, maybe a later start time by sort of a a month and a half or so so starting in October instead of August December or maybe even moving um uh coming back folks coming back to campus in different waves uh or moving to a modular schedule so that there's like um, folks coming for a concentrated period of six weeks uh, for a couple classes that are done on site, you know, uh, modular scheduling, low residency scheduling, like a lot of upper level courses where you do most of the work remotely, but then there's some concentrated times where people, small groups of people come together. So all of these things seem to be in the mix and they're all spelled out in these 15 scenarios. And this does seem to me to be the, really the conversations I've actually been a part of, not just reading about. And indeed, as one of my college pals, who is a distinguished Latina, a Latina teacher and researcher who happens to be starting as a president at a major prestigious small liberal arts college this fall. I mean, can you imagine starting a job like that this year? But there she goes. And she commented, and this is her quote from another pals, college pals Facebook post. She said, and I think this is absolutely right, every college and university president is doing everything in their control to have campuses open safely in the fall might be a late start, a staggered start, or a hybrid semester. So this idea of a late start, a staggered start, or a hybrid semester all goes to this idea of really sort of the creative thinking about how many of the contingency plans are coming up with different modes of what could it look like. Would it be starting in January? Would it be starting in October? Would it be starting in different cycles? La, da, 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 da. The possibly good news is that we are seeing a greater understanding of the fact that when it's that... um, that nobody has a plan in place. So whenever we see a headline saying that Boston University or Cal State Fullerton is going online in the fall, that might just be a plan. We need to read past the headline because it does seem like college administrators are doing their best to resume operations as quickly as possible, but also with a modicum of safety and always thinking with what what. Um, how to balance the multiple priorities. We'll hear more about this a little bit later. But all of these plans are circulating provisionally, it doesn't seem like anybody's made a decision. so. So, we've had robust health protocols. We've had a re- re- uh, an adjustment of how many people are involved, a revision of calendar. And then also, I think most fundamentally, and this is something we've already experienced, I think there's a resi- there seems to be a, a, a an insistence that folks be willing to revise some of the presumptive obligations of what it means to do theater or or to professionally or what it means to do college. And uh, so th- so here what I'm talking about, when I'm talking about presumptive obligations, I'm talking about the rights, rules, and responsibilities of what it means to be a theater professional or a, co- or a college pr- uh, person on a college campus. And some of these baseline assumptions of what we expected is what it means. They might need to be perhaps temporarily adapted to accommodate the extraordinary circumstances of the present moment. Now, this idea of revision of presumptive obligations in the entertainment industry, this tends these concerns tend to circle around contractual concerns, like union regulations about who can do what jobs or how many hours are in a workday or what the compensation needs to be, uh, who get paid gets paid at what rate and when, regulations around bonding and insurance, etc. Contractual considerations might need to be have specific one-time exemptions. Uh, and the goal would be to make sure that they're not in any permanent detriment to anybody. And in education, the revision of presumptive obligations are the kind of things we've been seeing and in conversation about already, which is things about questions of attendance, questions of grading, uh, structures and standards of rigor, um, and also access to supplemental resources necessary so that everyone has equitable opportunity for success. So these questions of how do we make some adjustments so that we can do what we do, uh, even if it means changing some of the foundational practices that folks are really assumed to be presumptive. But in either industry, what seems clear to me is that these adjustments, however temporary, revise, are are also these spaces of revision. Are People are examining what are the foundational assumptions about the value of the currency of what counts and what matters for cultural workers in these distinct but not dissimilar cultural arenas like higher education and theater. So this question of what does it mean to do the work of... Being in college or of making theater. What does that mean? What is the value? What is the currency? What counts and what matters? Seems to be people are really tr- like, seems there's a lot of conversation, and maybe we need to revise some of our foundational assumptions about what we're going to prioritize if we are to proceed. So, and so I was, so finally, since uh, encountering this in the Heights video last night, I sort of cl- I clicked in that these are the things i had been tracking and noticing. So in the midst of my in the Heights despair, I had actually been developing this question. And as if to prove my point that this was the question that was happening this week, um, uh, this planning aggressively for all these many contingencies, um, as I was preparing to sit down to record this podcast, I started receiving alerts alert for a brand new op-ed on this exact topic I'm talking about. And it was an op-ed from the president of Brown University, Christina Paxson, who's an economic, a, a economist by professional by professorial training and who happens to have been a former dean of Princeton, Princeton's Woodrow Wilson School. Paxson published an op-ed in today's uh, Sunday New York Times titled, quote, College Campuses Must Reopen in the Fall, Here's How We Do It. Now, in this op-ed, Paxson spells out the consideration that she's, in her estimation, university leaders must take. And she does it much more elegantly than I. She gives it a three three single words. She says, You gotta test, you gotta trace, and you gotta separate. Now it's, it's it aligns with what I've been saying, though. Um, her uh, because what she suggests is that again, Uh, There's got to be sort of more robust health protocols, there's got to be a capacity to manage the numbers, and there's also got to be a a mechanism uh, to sort of afford this kind of practices of social distancing and sort of adjusting calendar and space in such a way. And all of that is aligned with with what I think Paxton is arguing for along the lines of my similar point, which is really prioritizing the importance of the cultural work that happens on college campuses. Um, Paxson concludes with the following admonition to her readers. Taking these necessary steps will be difficult and costly, and it will force institutions to innovate as we have never done before. But colleges and universities are up to the challenge. Our duty is now to marshal the resources and expertise to make it possible to reopen our campuses safely as soon as possible. Our students and our local economies depend on it. So. In the coming weeks and months, it will be interesting to see how many of the provisional plans now in circulation uh, become plans of action, and how how many of them follow the boldness of the difficult, costly, but innovative strategies that Paxson calls for. Because indeed, that's the theme that I'm hearing going on this week. Our shared uncertainties about what the future holds will certainly persist, even as our collective patience with all of the changes is tested. And In some ways, that puts me again in mind of In the Heights. For those of you who don't know the musical well or haven't seen it in a while, it's worth remembering that In the Heights is a musical about a community experiencing the stress of uncertainty and change. At the curtain's rise, In the Heights ripples with the sound of morning as an urban community awakens. The edifices of three businesses mark the stage scape. The Rosario car service faces Daniela's unisex salon, and somewhere in between stands De La Vega Bodega. These three businesses anchor the community that comes to life in the musical. Each of these three businesses provides home to a family, the Rosario's nuclear family, the Daniela's work family, and the blended Della Vega family, respectively. Each of these each also houses a young person with big dreams for their future. College student Nina Rosario, salon employee Vanessa, and Bodega proti- proprietor Usnavi. And each of these businesses stands as a community landmark. Over the course of the musical drama that follows this opening scene, each of these three businesses will face the prospect of shutting down forever as they also confront, as each of the families housed within those businesses confront fractures and instabilities and uncertainties within. But by the musical's end, the community seen in the heights survives. But it is but even so, that community is forever changed by the loves found, lives lost, and choices made over the course of one fourth of July holiday weekend. So for me, um, In the Heights is always the story of, comu- of a community experiencing the shocks, uncertainties, losses, tragedies, and possibility of change. And in its final song, uh, Usnavi, the central character, acknowledges the precarity of the community he calls home. The precarity of the community he calls home, even as he hunkers down to stay there. I mean, in this last moment, Us- Usnavi is choosing to, his affir- to affirm his commitment to all he believes in by risking it all to just stay at home. And honestly, I'd never thought of the ending of In the Heights in quite this way. I'd often thought of the, the final song as Usnavi's moment of celebrating and affirming and stalwart resistance, his commitment to all he believes in, and he was going to stand Forthright against the forces of change, to sort of uh, advocate for and uh, celebrate the fact of his community and its histories, and all of that's still there. But what I'm also hearing in the song now, as I'm listening to the 2018 cast of In the Heights from what Milwaukee rap in their mosaic music video, I'm hearing in it also a sort of an awareness that anytime we claim a space as home, it's a contingent claim that also acknowledges the fact of precarity and and uncertainty, even as we affirm our certainty that there is something worthwhile in making the claim to say, we're going to stay here because we believe it's worth doing. It's it's an interesting revision of the end of the song for me. And now it's time to talk about this week's play, however briefly. Uh, The play is And Then They Forgot About The Rest by Georgina Escobar. Now, this is a play I've been thinking about assigning as our play to read for the week um, pretty much since the uh, shutdown began because it just kept coming up in my thoughts. I kept remembering images and moments from it. Um, And so I'm interested to sort of share some of those thoughts with you now. Now, the play, Georgina Escobar's And Then They Forgot About the Rest, has been written in the last few years, and it's set in what Escobar calls, quote, somewhere or truth or consequences, New Mexico. Now, those of you who know me know that I'm from New Mexico. So, anytime there's a space to offer some clarity and context about New Mexico, I'm going to grab it. And truth of New Mexico, truth of truth or consequences, New Mexico is an actual place. It's located about a two-hour drive from the southern border at Ciudad Juarez, and it's also about two hours, which is also the border of, with Mexico. Um, it's also about a two-hour drive from the White Sands National Monument, which is also the White Sands Missile Range, which is also the testing grounds for the first nuclear bomb detonated by the United States government in 1945. And Truth or Consequences is also about a two hour drive from my hometown outside of Albuquerque, New Mexico. Now it's a place that was originally incorporated in the early 20th century, 1916, I believe, as hot springs. Now there's a million hot springs throughout the desert Southwest. And it's usually a reference to the fact that throughout the desert Southwest, there's often mineral rich natural hot springs, bubbling springs, uh, sort of uh, mineral waters that are prevalent in this area. Um, And so, of course, uh, in 1916, this little township um, changed its name from Hot Springs. In 1916, it was Hot Springs. And about uh, 34 years later, in 1950, it decided to change its name to Truth or Consequences in response to a radio contest, the nationally- Uh, broadcast NBC radio game show Truth or Consequences promised to air a special program from the first town to officially change its name and in what was a bid for national publicity for what the town hoped would be an emerging tourism industry, um, Hot Springs changed its name and became Truth or Consequences New Mexico. Now I offer this by just sort of way of informational exegesis um, to also remind, to sort of underscore the fact that the place that Escobar chooses to set the play Is somewhere or somewhere like uh, Truth or Consequences, New Mexico. This is an in-between place, Um, a place that is a kind of place people pass through or end up. As beautiful as it is desolate, as harsh as it is beautiful, as lovely, a place so arid you can't imagine how life survives there until you see like spring water bubbling from the desert, desert uh, in between the rocks of the desert. So it's um it's in short it's an it's an in-between place. It's viscerally, uh, nonsensically contradictory. And in thus, in some ways, I think it's a really a perfect referent uh, for us to understand the kind of arid landscape in which the fallout shelter that uh, occupies the central space of, of uh, the somewhere, of, and, the rest, and then they forgot about the rest. Escobar, in the interview some of you might have read this week, reminds us that the play is a memory play. And it's a play set in the not-too-distant future. And memory plays are a kind of genre which is usually about a character reflecting on their past. And in this we have a, which is an interesting question, because the question of the retrievability of the past, the knowability of the past, is an open question in this play. Um, And it's also um, it's a memory play that's set in a somewhere like Truth or Consequences, New Mexico, and it's set in this not too distant future after which a cataclysmic event has led to a complete restructuring of American life and society, which uh, Escobar describes in a footnote to the play's text this way. After the big sink, when New York City and Southern California sunk. The Southwest became a new mecca for the pharma giant industry and their pilot fish, the ad agencies. And so what we see here is Georgina Escobar sort of sits in this nowhere place, this in-between space of somewhere or truth or consequences, New Mexico, this refocusing of us two kinds of, um, of industries, um, big Uh, big pharma, and advertising. These two industries, which apparently in the era post the big sink, are some of the key driving industries, and both of which are about promises, promises made of, of a better life. Now, What I'm fascinated about the play is I noted that this is a play that the Somewhere or Truth or Consequences is an in-between place. And the play blurs in its setting between two main uh, what we might call testing sites, these sites of testing of ideas, uh, a medical space where Jeanne submits to the experiments of Dr. Locke in what it appears, it's never quite clear, but it does appear to be an attempt that, Jeannie is really invested in managing, perhaps erasing or revising some significant traumatic memories, and Dr. Locke is trying to sort of figure out that therapy for her, and so there's this sort of fraught partnership as they're looking to sort of build uh, experiment toward this fix of, of fixing the past for Jeannie. The alternate site is an office space where we see a mismatched cluster of employees who are... Um, I guess they're supposed to be working. Uh, And part of that work is the sort of the vague work of testing out ideas for a new ad campaign for a luxury brand of whiskey. And we see them sort of hypothesize drawing upon their own lives, biographies, own imaginations as they sort of are experimenting toward this whiskey, uh, pitching an ad for this whiskey. And in both testing sites, uh, as we see these characters engaged in, what are sort of mundane industrial tasks like trying to fi- find, like trying to test out a new medical procedure or trying to figure out a new ad campaign in both t- testing sites nothing really is making a lot of clear sense and the only thing that becomes really palpably abundantly clear is that things are not entirely as they seem and indeed a palpable sense of foreboding bristles through every exchange between these characters something bad seems to be either about to happen or happening or having just happened. It's not entire, the temp, this temporal space is a little bit dreamlike. We're not exactly sure where we are in space and time, but there does seem to be something ominous, uh, foreboding happening or about to happen. And as the play, um, as the play unfolds, it does become ever more clear that there's something it's uncertain whether what is fixing what like is, is uh what is the cure what is the disease um and it's also becomes increasingly as it goes along it goes like are these you know are these folks who are working at the rest the ad agency called the rest um are they being employed by this supposedly prestigious ad ad ad, ad agency is it um proof of their privilege or proof of a kind of imprisonment are they uh are they actually inmates? Is this actually the asylum? It's, it becomes a little bit unclear. Um, and throughout the, But throughout, as the play ponders this sort of oscillating uncertainty of one, like part of the mystery of the play is we're trying to figure out what's going on. And the play very intentionally prevents us from being certain that we figured out what's happening. And that's part of, I think, the the play's way of constantly leaving us a little bit unsettled, even as we're more and more sure that something bad is happening. Because all the way, what what I find really fascinating, too, about the play is throughout, the play is haunted by a familiar but enormous question. Like, what is the meaning of life? But in this play, there's a twist that comes. What is the meaning of a life? That loses its grasp on its own memories. On the one hand, what is the meaning of life if you don't know who you are or were? Um, and then, what is the meaning of life when life itself might not survive a seemingly imminent, seemingly ecological catastrophe? Like, what is the point of what is the point of living when the things that give life meaning, i.e., memory and natural life? What are, what are, what's the point? You know, and these are the, this is this big question that's constantly haunting. And I think leads to this sense of constant thrum of existential dread that sort of imbues a lot of the anxiety that drives this piece. And yet I have to say when every time I've seen this play twice, I've seen it in two very different formats and both times I've really loved its hope. There's a sort of an abiding sense of underlying hope in it because I saw it once in a rehearsed reading. It's in at the Sin Muros Latinx Play Festival at Houston Stage, the Stages Theater. I saw a staged reading of it where I was able to really listen to the play in dialogue. And then I also saw a really gloriously directed Furl production at Intar. Um, David Mendizabal, who some of you might remember from last week's episode of El Ritmo, um, directed a glorious. Full production in which the entire stage space was transformed into what felt like an aluminum curved dome dump bunker. It was extraordinary. And But whether I was just listening to the words or entirely immersed in the space of the play, what I found so powerful about this play both times I experienced it is the way Escobar's enormous query, What is the meaning of life?, burbles constantly under the surface, perhaps like the natural springs are burbling under the desert earth and truth or consequences how this burbling hope underneath the surface is um, it gives a pulsing feeling of existential uncertainty, but also with the sense of there might be something more. There might be something beyond. It might just, it might, there's a might there that is mighty and a throbbing sense of something's really wrong, but there's also maybe some ways to think it right, to believe it right. Um, And I think part of what, the way I get that hope is there's, It's so big, it's so uncertain. We don't understand the world, like the world of the play is 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 beyond our comprehension in some ways, and that's part of the point. Um, But part because, partly because it's so big and so uncertain, the characters become ever more real, and the characters themselves are like, I can't even deal with this. Like this is weird and bad, and I just can't. And they absorb themselves by seeking a cure or by busying themselves with the with work that they don't care about, Um, and that tension. Um, something really hugely bad could happen at any moment, but I'll look for a pill that'll fix it, or I'll just keep working until it all stops. This becomes such a profound experiential allegory for the con- conditional everyday toxicities of surviving inlet capitalism. And yet, there's something about it that is beyond its situation. Sort of, and it's a play that does feel as apt to our moment as Tony this Is The Women of Padilla or Kaira is Better Maybe as a portrait of the spiritual and emotional and political in between we find ourselves in right now. I mean, and come on, when Jules complains about her boss, Ro, and she says, I don't understand her penchant for business as usual in times like this. Why are we pretending work matters? Even without the bio threats, the nuclear, the plagues, the early, early onset, why does she want to have a meeting here? I mean, it was really, when I read that line this time, it was really hard not to feel that land on my chest in like in a particular kind of like, this is us, this is right now. It was like the work of the rest. It located in an underground bunk- bunker in a somewhere like Truth or Consequences, New Mexico. It just felt like a lot, like a, like a lot of the Zoom rooms I've been in in 2020. Yet as grimly dystopic as this place certainly feels, going back to what I threatened, I do think there's a kind of a, a burbling hope in it. And because I'm always entranced by her plays, I've known Georgina's work for about 10 years. She was a student of mine at the University of New Mexico. And I've always marveled how, no matter how grim or ominous or how playful or joyful her plays might be, her characters speak to each other with a really distinctive, connective intimacy. Um, And, you know, that there is... And in all of her plays, it's in her characters and the way they talk to each other and the way they relate to each other when they're speaking to each other on a stage, that we can hear Escobar's belief in the tensile truths of human intimacy, this sort of connection between human spirits that constitute a tightly knotted web of interconnection, that might just be the safety net we will soon safety net we will soon need, um, especially as the saying goes, the safety net we will soon need when we encounter unprecedented times like this. Stinky Lulu Says is an independent project of Stinky Lulu Productions, developed in response to the shutdown of spring 2020 and in support of the curriculum of my Princeton University course, 21st Century Latinx Drama. Links to the resources referenced in this episode can be found under the 21LTX tab on my Princeton University Scholar page, scholar.princeton.edu slash bherrera, and it's at that 21LTX tab where you'll find direct links to some of the sources highlighted in today's episode, like links to the many articles and op-eds I mentioned, as well as uh, to the Mosaic music video produced by the 2018 cast of the Milwaukee Rep production of In the Heights. At the 21LTX tab, you'll also find links to other resources like Beto Burns playlist for his YouTube series, El Ritmo, and my own lists of uh, streaming Latinx plays or our lost season of Latinx plays. El Ritmo episodes uh, are a YouTube series that uh, address the reverberations of the shutdown for the contemporary theater, especially from the perspective of Latinx theater artists and other theater artists of color. Modest material support for all of El most contributing artists is provided by Stinky Lulu Productions, Princeton's program and theater and the Soul Project. And you can find that direct link to the um, LTX tab itself as the pinned tweet on my Twitter profile page at Stinky Lulu. And of course, if you have something you would like to say about what Stinky Lulu says, you can always find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Stinky Lulu, S-T-I-N-K-Y-L-U-L-U. And of course, you can always email me at StinkyLulu at gmail.com. This has been a podcast pedagogy experiment that has relied upon the questions and provocations and comments of all my listeners, not just those enrolled in my course, but also all the rest of y'all. And I should note that, uh, for those of you who are still listening, that the next, possibly last episode of this particular series of uh, Stinky Lulu Says episodes, the next episode will be an Ask Me Anything episode, and I will be relying on your questions to prompt everything that Stinky Lulu Says next time, so I do look forward to hearing from you. And thanks for listening. But until you're, here, until you're back, next t- until next time, uh, as you maintain your social distance, do what you can to take care of yourself and your beloveds. And as we all do whatever we need to do, I invite you to join me in my belief that so long as we keep listening to each other, we together will grow forward even through this. And we'll keep working on those contingency plans. At least, that's what Stinky Lulu says.